everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we get into the podcast, a word from the sponsors of this episode, Chargebee. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS and subscription startups, such as Hopin, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is particularly powerful for European startups to navigate complex issues such as tax compliances, invoicing, and billing regulations. The product also enables you to experiment with different pricing models and also to localize the pricing and checkout experiences. So check them out at chargebee.com. And now let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Roberto Custas, co-founder and CEO of DeepSea.ai. DeepSea uses machine and AI to extract data that enables charterers and ship owners to gain visibility and transparency on vessel performance across the whole fleet. In 2020, DeepSea Technologies secured a 3 million euro investment from the Environment Technology Fund, ETF, and is currently one of the fastest growing maritime startups in Europe. I'm really excited to have Roberto on the show and learn all about the maritime industry. Welcome, Roberto. Thank you very much for inviting me, Anita. Roberto, I understand your family background is in shipping, and that was one of the factors in starting Deep Sea. Can you just give a quick background on how you ended up starting Deep Sea? And could you also elaborate on why you think the maritime industry has been so late in modernizing? Both excellent questions with quite a lot of depth. To just give a brief background on uh, the history of the company and how we conceived the idea. First of all, I should mention that in Greece, because we own around 20% of the global fleet, most of us, even through direct relatives or friends or through acquaintances, are somewhat related to shipping or have experience with with the industry. So the inception of the idea was quite organic because I, I had just finished my studies in the UK in mechanical engineering and then I did a master's in computer science at the University of Oxford. So when I came back, having just studied machine learning and AI, it seemed absurd how primitive the maritime industry was, given that the assets, so each vessel has a value of many times over 50 million, over 100 million. And still they're monitored by once a day emails that are typed by the captain that just state the condition of the vessel, how much fuel was consumed. These vessels consume around 80 tons of fuel per day, which translates to around $40,000 per day, which means that the numbers are quite big and there was quite a big technological gap. If I answered the first part of the question, which is how we started the company, which is quite an organic thing. And with Costas, the co-founder and CTO, we are childhood family friends. We have always known each other and he had just finished his degree in Cambridge University in the UK in machine learning. It's one of these conversations where uh, you start talking about the possibilities of something and they're endless and you spend five hours and you don't know how much time has gone by because you're both so excited about the potential. Just to give a, a small view on how we saw things back then because we didn't have the business acumen. We knew nothing about business. We were both engineers. So we primarily focused in the early stages on the problem that we were solving. We thought that because fuel is expensive, if we can use machine learning to help reduce it in any sort of meaningful way, then some people might care about that and some people might be willing to give us some money in exchange of those services. So they're still very primitive and research-based for the first year or so until we started having our first, let's say, pitch to clients, having a, a, let's say, primitive product and getting feedback from the market. 
which then we started developing a pricing model, which is more of a research project when it started. And uh, I feel it's, it's been more genuine. That's the first part of the question. The second was, why has shipping in particular seemed not been keen to adopt new technologies? I believe that it stems from a very unique problem that shipping has, which is that assets float around the world and are very far from the main headquarters that manage them. Also, vessels are at sea most of the time and only reach ports for a few hours and then are off again, which means that anything that's installed on a vessel or any procedure on which the vessels rely needs to be very, very robust. And you can't just try new things and then not be risk averse because if you have that mentality in shipping, the chances are you won't survive very long in the industry because you have to be very, very careful about any decision, especially any engineering or mechanical decision. Because if there's a factory and an engine breaks down, then it's fine to go and fix it or you send an engineer. If the main engine breaks down of the vessel in the middle of the ocean, only 30 people's lives, lives in jeopardy. But it's also that this vessel is not governed, it's just left float. It's very difficult to salvage it. And if you arrange an expedition for someone to drag it out. It's a very expensive procedure. You lose a lot of money. So the inherent difficulties of the industry have created business people with that character trait being risk averse. So they aren't keen to adopt new technologies. Now, what has changed in the past years, and it's the reason why we have been able to see to flourish in this day and age, is first of all, the connectivity has become a bit better. So they increasingly rely on the connectivity between shore and the vessel to transfer information. It's the maturity of the technology as well that shows a meaningful value to them, which then makes it a decision which they can weigh the risks with the gains. And the gains are measurable. For instance, if I save 10% of fuel and my vessel consumes 40,000 per day, that's 1.2 million per month. So if I save 10% or let's say 100,000 per month, so it's a meaningful return on investment if I do this right. I think those combined factors have allowed us to grow in this risk-averse industry. So interesting. There's something you said that caught my attention because it's something I've heard from others where you have two people who have an engineering background, non-business background that are so passionate. It seems in some way like it was just meant to be. This person was your friend. You knew the shipping industry was really primitive. You could see that a little bit of technology could really make a big impact. So I can see all the ingredients and why you were so excited. Talk me through how you thought about the fact that neither of you had the business background. Both of you were engineers. How did you overcome that barrier in your mind? What did you think you were going to do to supplement that business knowledge that was missing? There are probably a lot of entrepreneurs that have great ideas and are really technical, but this part scares them. They don't even know what to do next. That's a very valid argument. I want to end the argument by recommending a book as well, which I think is, is extremely important. So first of all, when you are an engineer at heart, and you're very passionate about the product that you're building, then you often attract people that are moved by your passion and are willing to help you or give you advice, even financially help you as investors or as a company, or they might have connections. So I think the passion that an engineer has comes a long way, especially in the early days, because if you've studied business and you go like with a business plan with someone, it might make financial sense, but you probably might lack the same passion that an engineer who creates it has. This 
energy was felt by both investors and, and potential clients. So I'm glad to say that many people believed in us in the early stages that helped us make up for the lack of knowledge in the business domain. I won't lie, it has been a very, very steep learning curve, particularly on my side, because the CTO is a bit more on his comfort zone. I mean, he also faces tremendous challenges, but at least there are engineering challenges or IT challenges that he was a bit familiar with in in the beginning. So so I, I think in startups, you have to accept the fact that you need to keep learning and you need to keep expanding your knowledge base, which means that you need to be asking questions. Never assume that you know a certain subject. Every person that you meet has something to offer you and you need to really reevaluate the whole process and yourself as well through it. Because even if you have a business degree, it might help you in stage one because you've seen it before, you know what the steps are. But the reality of a business is different. So the book that I wanted to recommend is Shoe Dog. I'm sure you, you, many people are familiar by the founder of, of Nike. Phil Knight's idea was to really allow people to let's say, take running as an activity. He found it very liberating and he wanted other people to feel the same thing. And because the passion was so genuine, he went through so many obstacles, but he was able to overcome them. Because when you're very passionate, you keep stumbling on obstacles, but they don't really put you down. So in our case... When I think back, it was absurd believing that we would reach the stage that we're at now. But we just believe that if there is a one in a million chance that we can change the industry for the better and democratize it, then it's worth giving our everything towards this vision. I can see why so many investors, when they're looking at the very early stage, are so interested in the founders and the passion they have. It sounds like it's such an important ingredient that makes up for so many other deficiencies that the team might have. So let me go back to what we were talking about with the industry. How did the pandemic impact the maritime industry and your business? What did you need to do to adapt when the pandemic happened? First of all, we were very lucky because we had just closed a financing round before the pandemic, which meant that we had the time and the resources, the capital resources, to be able to restructure our budget in a way that meant that we had an immediate financial pressure on the company, which was very important because if we had three months runway, I don't know how we would overcome that, to be honest. We're very lucky in that sense that we found investors who closed around before the pandemic started. And that doesn't mean though that we didn't have to adapt. The positive thing about the maritime industry is that it wasn't heavily influenced by the pandemic because we consume goods even when we're at home, we eat food. The world needs to keep revolving, which means ships were operating properly, goods were transferred. So our clients were not financially impacted. That was an important element. Now, we face great difficulties because part of our offering involves us installing some equipment on the vessel that collects data. And we used to do that with our own engineers or with subcontractors. Now, what really changed in the pandemic is that many ports didn't allow other people to enter the vessel because if if someone from the crew was infected by COVID, they had to stay at the port for two weeks, which means the company is losing a lot of money, so they won't risk it. We had to find a way to expand our business because we could just press pause for, let's say, 12 months in our growth. The challenge that caused us with the operations department was able to overcome was the installation difficulty by sending equipment on board with manuals so the crew could install it themselves. So it was like a plug and play solution where we had to create a box in the office with manuals in different languages. We improvised and we had Viber on the phones from different people within the company. And we had numbers on the equipment so they could text us if they had any problems, take pictures, you know, whatever. And we were able to actually do most of our installations in the past year around 100% growth the year before, even though we had the pandemic and by doing it by crew. 
This really helped us streamline the process because we needed to make it extremely simple. And other things have been opening up with the same instructions an experienced subcontractor that we use is able to do it in a much shorter time period. So we had to adapt as everyone, but it wasn't straightforward in the beginning. What other challenges did you say you faced in those early stages when first leading the company and maybe share some lessons that you may have learned from that? In in the early days, I think a very important lesson we have learned at DeepSea is the concept of delaying gratification, which means that you need to balance really well your long-term objectives with short-term benefits. If you do only one or only the other, you're going to face long-term problems. The great difficulty that we faced as a company was that as a very young startup with very few people and very limited resources, we had embarked upon a journey to create a tech company that involved AI, a very user-friendly product, which meant design and dev was particularly challenging. Also have our own data collection system because the data collection systems that existed, the, the data quality was so bad that we couldn't apply any AI on it which meant that we had to create this whole product portfolio, which was very challenging ourselves. And with one person in hardware at the beginning, one person in AI, one person in dev, I was doing the design myself. It was very, very challenging. But having powered through those difficult moments, we are the only company that actually has a holistic turnkey solution as part of the offering. I need to subcontract different companies part of it. So when they make a financial proposal, they're usually more expensive and the customer experience isn't as smooth as it's with us because we can take care of everything. I think that's a very important lesson because if we had started just by doing AI or just by doing a product and then we thought, oh, we might as well do AI now, it would have been very difficult as a company to invest loads of resources in that area because we've seen that through most of our competitors that they're reluctant to pivot when they have something to lose. So when the company is valuable, people become more risk averse. And and especially with the hardware and the data collection system, because hardware has long production development cycles than software, you need two years or three years to see any meaningful result. At the pace at which the world is moving now, it's very difficult to make a decision that's going to take three years to have any sort of impact. And if you don't do it well, you might never see an impact whatsoever. So yeah, I think that's something that was a great challenge, but we handled really well in the early stages. I remember when you and I first spoke, you talked about selling into B2B and just the process and what you've learned. Maybe you can talk about what is it specifically that was challenging or what do you feel you need to nail if you're selling into B2B. As we were both engineers, a great challenge that we faced in the beginning was that we thought people would understand how amazing our product was and give us loads of money and that would be it. But the truth of the matter is that's not how the world actually works. And it's not how it should work because it's not their job to really understand the technology and the potential. You need to make the decision for them to invest as simple as possible because essentially they're investing in your technology to get something in return. And usually businesses operate around either increasing their revenue or minimizing their costs. So you need to be doing one or the other really well and be able to prove it. Something that we have really become better at is structuring our commercial offering and our sales process in a way that defines very specifically what the return on investment is when using our software. So we have a proof of value period, which is what we call it, and it has three distinct steps, by the end of which we do an estimation of savings. So in the one or two vessels that we have, we estimate how much money 
they have saved or they would save throughout the entire year by using our, our software and how much it would cost them to invest in it. it. It then becomes a business decision. Okay, I'm going to have an ROI of 10x, which is 10 to 15x, which is massive. It makes a decision for them very, very easy. And this is something that I think very few companies in the B2B SaaS landscape do. And I find it very hard to sell otherwise, because if you don't make it as simple, then you don't make the decision easy to digest and, 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 and uh, comprehend. And the proof of value, we do that also with existing clients now on a quarterly basis in order to upsell. Our investors would call our clients or we would ask them how happy they were. And some of them would be happy by the service, others weren't as happy. We didn't know exactly why. And the problem was that we hadn't defined exactly what success means. And if you haven't defined expectations, happiness cannot be achieved. We saw that people were happy, but they were not buying more. So it didn't make any sense to us. The reason why they weren't buying more is because they didn't exactly know why they were happy. So when we started quantifying on a quarterly basis, what we have achieved together in these past three months, what decisions we made, what was the impact, et cetera, et cetera, it really put a framework around, let's say, the happiness and the customer satisfaction, which then was very easy to lead to an upsell. Because if you tell someone, okay, we have four vessels together, you have 15 in total, this is what we achieved. Great job. That report, probably the person who you give it to or whom you create it with is going to show it to his boss because he's going to be like, oh, look how much money I helped save. You're making him look good and feel empowered by the decision. So when the management sees that report, they'll most probably say, okay, why aren't we using this for more vests? And if they don't say it by themselves, the second time or third time around, you can nudge them towards it. So it's all about making the decision as a no-brainer as possible. I think that's really helpful to hear. And if I understand correctly, what you're saying is it's really important for startups to define what success should look like for their customers and set that expectation and not leave it up to the customers to figure out if your software has been successful for them. That's the key that you were able to fix that helps you now to do upsells. It's very interesting because it's the exact same product the exact same team, the exact same clients, but a totally different landscape just because you change the framework of the conversation. So it's a very powerful tool. And you were able to do this because you've installed some software, you're collecting data on the performance. And what you now were able to do is take that data and make meaningful reports or insights yeah. for them to see in metrics that they care about. Yes, exactly. The other area that I really wanted to drill down with you on, Roberto, was on fundraising. I know that when we first spoke, you said that you were wary of taking VC money. I'm interested in understanding what led you to change your mind about going for VC money. Again, we were both engineers and we didn't have a lot of experience. We didn't know how the startup world worked. We had just heard horror stories about VCs taking over companies, throwing the founders out, etc., which made us very reluctant in the early stages to accept any VC money. When we started, we used some capital from European funds. We would do research projects for the European Union as part of a coalition. And we would then use that extra capital because we wouldn't get paid, cost us and myself, but we would use that money to hire people in order to start it in and build the business. And we also had one strategic investor with a small 200,000 euro investment and some contracts just to help us establish that feedback loop with one client, which 
again, I think it's a very important first step for anyone operating the B2B SaaS to find a big customer in your space and help you find that product market fit. Help you like make iterations on the product, believe in you and have that logo as part of your early presentations. Because big difficulty in the beginning is that everyone says, if no one else has it, why should I have it? And that's an argument that you can't really defeat. So the, the early stages are, are the most difficult. Now, the reason why we decided to raise VC money because we had our first business hire, who's now our partnership director, Simon Hadjigeru. He was for a long time our business director. And he had a business and economics background. He had worked in other companies. He had worked in VCs in China before. He's Greek. When he came, he was responsible for the financial stuff of the company, the budget and everything. And he said that he believes that we should raise money from a VC. And again, I said, yeah, but they're going to take a, a big chunk of the company. And he just said, okay, let's just go to Web Summit, which was then a really big thing for us, meet with the VCs and see if we can convince them to invest and let's see the contracts and decide then because we might see that the contract might make sense. So we had a lot of meetings. None of them were fruitful, actually. The pivotal moment for us was when a very big client from Europe saw our product through one of our customers. So that's a very big charter that has hundreds of vessels, saw our product, flew us to Geneva. We met with them in person. They gave us contracts for 20 vessels, which then was absurd money for us. We had 20 vessels in total. So they doubled in single contract uh, our revenues. And, And that logo, because it's such an established company, helped us attract VCs. And then any VC we talked to before that moment, I said that they don't see this as an important or big company or they don't see any potential. But as soon as we had that one logo, the conversation changed and they were begging us to take their money. Now, raising the first half million in 2019 was, I think, the hardest capital that we had to raise because we didn't have any experience, we didn't have any investors, and we didn't have any real track record. So in 2019, when we raised the first money, we said, okay, this isn't that bad because we understand then how it works, essentially. We understand what the multipliers are of revenue, what milestones we can achieve to achieve certain valuations, etc. ETF came in with 3 million in early 2020, and we closed just this past summer 5 million around with a Japanese corporate that's going to help us expand in, in Asia, China, North Korea, and Japan. That first fundraise is so difficult for most entrepreneurs. If you look back at that process, What do you feel you did right in terms of how you prepared for the fundraising? The difficulty was that we didn't have that many clients that were willing to vouch for us. And we didn't know the investor's perspective. So when they were telling us that we need an exit in five years, for instance, we thought, yeah, we're not going to sell the company in five years. So that can't be part of the contract. So we're saying things like that just because we didn't understand where they were coming from or what their objectives were. Now... The Series A, which is a 3 million by ETF, I have to say that we were very lucky because ETF invested the whole amount. We didn't have many investors to put together as in this new previous round. And it happened quite fast because we had quite good growth revenue-wise. As soon as they saw that and they talked to a few of our clients who were very enthusiastic about what we were doing, it was a difficult process, but they wouldn't say it was particularly hard. Like It happened without us even realizing it a lot. Like We flew to London a couple of times to meet them. They came to Greece, but... We were like still focusing on the business and this just sort of happened. I, th- I think that it's very important to have strategic investors beforehand or angel investors who are connected with your industry. That is important because it will really help with the early revenue or product market fit for you to prove yourself. And that is the most difficult part of the journey is actually having 
either strategic or some angels that know people within your industry that can then trust you and believe in your product and with a discount, use your product and don't be afraid to give people discounts in the beginning because no one will want to pay the full price and no one should pay the full price and bear that in mind. When that happens, you need some angel investors and strategics to help you build a product market fit and to get your first customers. When you get your first customers and they're somewhat happy, then things become increasingly easy because that first customer base acts as your reference point for any other investor or client. And you can tell them, yeah, talk to these guys. They've been very happy. Even if they're your investors, if it's a known firm, they can act as your ambassadors in the industry. And as soon as you have that revenue growth, that's the most important thing. Even now in the company, I could be telling about the amazing process and sales. If you didn't have any revenue growth, no one really cares. So essentially, all people care about is A, revenue growth, and B, the size of the market. So something else that you should be wary of is that investors, even on the seed round or series A round, take a calculator out and make very simple, it's arithmetic calculation, which is what valuation am I joining in? What's the risk somewhat? And what are the exit options? So it needs to be an industry that has the potential ideally to become a unicorn company. Even if that seems difficult, you need to convince the investors that that can happen. Because if you're very realistic and tell them, yeah, you know, that's not going to happen, they won't really be that interested. You need to sell them a good story. And their early revenue growth is just being used to back up that amazing story of yours. Like, yeah, we, we doubled up in the last nine months, even though we don't have the working capital to really fuel our growth in sales or in operations or in whatever. And I really believe that in the next year, we could reach that milestone and the future is ours. Like we could get another round from these guys. And then in three, four years, we can be acquired by that company or we could go IPO or we could do whatever. But it needs to be very big as a final picture. And you need the early story, the proof of value. As you do for your clients, you need that for your investors. You need to prove that what you're doing is valuable, people want it, and there is a market for it. I'm sure entrepreneurs have heard this from VCs, but I think it's really helpful to hear case studies of different companies and how the founders were able to raise money. So thank you for that. Just an important added note on this. It has to do with Phil Knight's uh, book, Shoe Dog. It's that Nike logo and statement that says, just do it, I think is the best motivational statement because this might seem very daunting to someone hearing this that hasn't raised a seed round yet. But the best way to learn and the way that we have learned is actually to try and fail and be okay with failure. Because failure does not mean that you are not good enough. It means that you probably don't know enough yet, or you don't know how to convince the people yet. It doesn't mean that your product is not good. You just don't know how to convince people that it's actually good. So just go out and do it and uh, get that feedback loop of learning kicking in. I love it. Thank you so much. That's really good advice. You're tackling this huge industry maritime, which is very much back in the ages in terms of technology and innovation. So you had to hire people that were much, much older than you. You told me that you had 80% of your team, which was all older than you. How did you convince people to join you and what advice do you have for managing people that are much older and maybe even more experienced in the industry that you're in? Yes, that's an excellent question. It is very difficult in the beginning, not only to hire people who are older than you, but also to conceive that you can tell them what to do and how to do it. So the first thing that we are looking for in potential candidates is people who share the same passion that we do. So when we conducted an interview, we'd explain what we want to do and how massive this is for the industry and how important this is, because we are literally changing the world. 
in the interview process, we would see people that had that spark in their eyes, that, that are real passion, irrespective of their age. So if people share the same passion, then they, they wanted to jump aboard the ship, pun intended. So the hiring was made easy if, the, if people were convinced by our vision and what we stood for as a company. Now, a great difficulty once you hire these people, because things in startups aren't all roses. In difficult times, the management can become a bit difficult because you pressure people and you need to sort of set boundaries and set procedures across people who are older than you. And you can need to tell them when they're doing stuff wrong, even though you might not be experienced in that area. So you need to become increasingly good at cutting through the bullshit. But you need to really understand the objections that they're setting, how realistic they are, what they're telling you, and if they are the right fit as a mentality for the company. If you share the same values, and it all starts from that, you won't be working with people who are being dishonest with you, which is a very difficult thing in the beginning. I had actually to let go myself of two people, one being 62 years old, one being 55 years old, and I was 24. All of that within five months. Then I had to keep believing that I was making the right decision. And you have to question yourself when you have a gut feeling. You become increasingly good at this the more that you experience it. As soon as we let go of the second person and we thought hardware is too difficult, we might as well drop the department. We had from one of our biggest competitors in Greece, their head of hardware was leaving. And I was looking for a job. And, and we met with him and he seemed like the exact right fit. And within three months, we had the first working version, which was like much sooner than any timeline that the previous guys had given us. Just trust your own instincts and cultivate your people skills and focus on them. From what I understood of everything that you've said, one is you need to find people who are as passionate about what you're trying to do yes. as you are. That's really the base the second is you have to be comfortable not knowing everything, just asking the right questions. And in some respects, having an instinct and making mistakes, like you hired this head of hardware and they didn't work out and you had to let them go and you just learn and that's okay. As long as you keep the North Star of what you're doing in mind. Exactly. Yes. It must have been so difficult to go along this journey. And probably you had a lot of times when it was really stressful. What advice? would you give your colleagues to help them not burn out? It, it has indeed been very difficult, especially in the early days, much more than now, because it seems in the early days that any problem is fatal. I mean, if you have a big problem at the beginning, you're not easily saved. And that's why it's important to have investors in, because if you have investors, they can give you more money because they want to lose their existing investment. So that gives you kind of a safety net. There are repercussions. I mean, you do lose equity in exchange, but at least you have a safety net that the world is not ending if you make a wrong decision. On the other hand, the positive side is that when we care a lot about something, to inflate the importance of things as they happen. For instance, when we used to see a competitor gaining headway or raising money, or we would, uh, let's say, not be able to convince a client, we thought it's the end of the world and that's it, and we can't do this, and we might as well pack our bags and go home. But you need to sleep it off and every day is a new day and you go at it day by day when it's very difficult, just because it's very difficult to, to handle it otherwise. And I can assure you that if you power through, better days will come and it will be often very unexpected. And what I mean by this is that you might be working, seeing no progress. And then a big client comes along and changes the whole landscape for you, or you're not making any headway with clients, but then a strategic investor comes along that helps you in an immense ways that you couldn't have imagined before. Or someone leaves your team 
two of them I had to let go. And I thought like, that's it. I had panic attacks literally in the meeting room because I thought like, I can't do this. I can't solve this myself. It's too difficult. But then it helps having a co-founder because my co-founder, who's a bit less panicky than I am, told him, okay, let's give it a week and then we'll see if we'll drop the, the hardware department. And we gave it a week. We left the, uh, the job ad open and then we saw that person. And, you know, it was just... And an amazing closure to that nightmare. Once you understand that it's a roller coaster, I I think the greatest piece of advice that I can give is try and enjoy it. You should, of course, care about the company immensely, but not to the extent that it's consuming your whole being. Because apart from everything, what you're going through is an amazing experience. It's not going to happen again. You probably won't reach the same stages again. If I made a new company tomorrow, I would probably jump Many of the stages that we did with DeepSea, but they're so valuable in terms of learning to try to enjoy it as much as you can. I think that's really uplifting to hear, I'm sure, for a lot of entrepreneurs. And what I took away from it is really live in the present, enjoy the experience of being a first-time entrepreneur or a second-time entrepreneur. Don't take things too seriously. And I think if I had to take one thing away from this conversation was... Entrepreneurship is a roller coaster. It is going to constantly have ups and downs and you just learn to roll with it. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. I have a quick rapid round. I think you've actually answered some of the questions in the rapid round in our conversation, but just to recap it for others, what's your favorite book? Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And Blitzscaling. Oh, okay. Blitzscaling. What about a favorite productivity tip or productivity tool that you use? I'm ironically old-fashioned, so I keep a notebook with a to-do list of what I have to do every day and I make sure I go through it because you can be inundated with things and you might forget to do the important tasks. I try to get out of the park these first and then focus on anything else. Okay. What's your favorite European city? Paris. I have actually family there. So my cousins live in Paris. I've been quite a few times and I just really like the food, the culture, the arts. Yeah, it is beautiful. Last one, favorite quote. Favorite quote. I'll stick with just do it because it's very simple. Excellent. Well, thank you, Roberto, for being on this podcast with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.